So I thought, as we're coming up to Christmas, uh, a period of temptation, if you like, and ostentatiousness, I thought it'd be good to encourage us to think a little bit about the devil. And just heard the story, but by the time the Garden of Eden story is told, we have met the main protagonists of the Bible. We've met God, humans, and Satan, and those three things just run all the way through. And God is the creator. He created the universe, brought light into darkness, separated light and dark, separated water and land to create earth and oceans, filled the earth with plants or lights as we now know them, the heavens, sun, moon and stars, life in the oceans, life in the air, animals and finally humans being Adam and Eve. And I honestly believe that it was God's intent that they be happy. And I believe it's God's intent too that we are happy. Um, but there is a but. In the garden were two special trees. The tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And Adam and Eve were not permitted to eat from these. We've got to ask, if God didn't want them to eat this fruit, then why did he put the trees there? Um, because we know that God always has a reason for whatever he does, and I've pondered over this. My current view, I have to say current view, is that he wanted to give us some choice. And let's face it, without the tree, how would good... How would God know that we were good when there is no way of being disobedient? If I put it another way, the question I would ask, if you can't be bad because there's no means by which to be bad, does that make you good? And I kind of go, no, it doesn't, does it? It doesn't. You've got to be to be good. I think it's you're good because it's something that you choose to do. And that's reminding me a bit about last week with Millie and the multiple T-shirts. Do you remember with the, the superficial layers or the wholesome goodness and that sort of thing there? So I think the fact that God put the trees there gave Adam and Eve an opportunity, if you like, to demonstrate their goodness or their obedience. However, the presence of the trees provided an opening for the devil. Uh, and so if you think about the devil now, so we've already thought about images of him and recognize actually that the images that we generally portray are not really him, they're just caricatures. Uh, but if I ask who he was or what he does, you might come up with different ideas. And I know generally people, if people ask, who is, who is the devil? The thing I'd normally hear would be, he's the fallen angel or something like that. But if we think about his purpose, then it becomes a bit more clear to us. His purpose is to oppose God. He is God's principal opponent. He wants to destroy what God has created. He is a destructive force. And we have two opposing forces here. We've got 
a creative force of God and the destructive force of the devil, and we seem to be caught in the middle of all of this, which makes it a trial for us. And if we look on the internet for different names for the devil, a lot of them give you an idea of what he's up to, really. Uh, Names would be like the accuser, the adversary, angel of light. I'm going to go, hmm, that shows you how cunning he is, doesn't it? Able to deceive us. Antichrist, the beast, which is what the images, I think, some of you did. Beelzebub, the dragon, perhaps recognition of the serpent, but with legs this time. The evil one, father of lies, god of this age. Think about the gods that we talk about, false gods that exist in our life around us all the time. I think that's a really prevalent one. Uh, Lucifer, serpent, tempter, and so on. So lots of names that give us a clue as to what he does. He's tempting. And his characteristics, what's he like? Well, I think he's sly. He's clever. And he promises things that we can't have. He tells us things that are not true. He tells us in a very convincing way, though. And in the text we saw in the Garden of Eden, we saw that He's described as being more crafty than any wild animal. So how does he work in our lives today? And Well, we know he works against God, so I was asking myself, hmm, what does God want to achieve? And I'm kind of going, that's quite a big question, isn't it, really? But... I then went to Jesus, and if we think in John 15, when Jesus is talking about the vine and the branches, and I know Laurie talked about this a little while ago, I'll just read the first um, few verses. It gives an idea. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so it will be even more fruitful. You're already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine, and neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Now, we don't have time to go through the whole passage, but the essence is is of a coming together, if you like, and we come to this church as individuals, sisters, brothers, etc., each with our own qualities, but in coming together, God wants us to create a wholesome society that flourishes, a society that is fruitful, hence the story of the vine and the fruit. A society that is loving and compassionate and forgiving. And if you think about the fruit from the vine, then you think about, ah, the fruit of the Spirit. You might remember what they are. Uh, Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And if you 
think about each of these characteristics, they serve to bring us closer together, to bind us together as that one vine. And then you think about, ah, oh, Satan's job is to break up that sense of oneness, if you like, that comes from the vine. And quite simply, he looks for weaknesses and exploits them. And he intends, uh, leads us to into behaviours, rather, I should say, which serves to separate us. And these behaviours we might know as sinful behaviours, and we might look at the seven sins, perhaps. I know there's lots of them, but you go on. But if you look at those sins up there, lust. Next one, please. Yeah, lust, gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath, envy, and pride. If you think about each of those things, they tend to separate us from someone else. And we see in the, the, the media is full of the dangers of lust at the moment. Um, and, you know, those others, they serve to separate us from other people. And so they are destructive in that separation. They are things that the devil seeks to, to achieve. So the next thing then would be to say, well, how are we, thanks Steve, how are we going to guard against the devil? And I'm going to put first, and we might argue whether this should be first, but maybe it's my military background that says that. First, acknowledge that the devil exists. If you don't know, thank you, Steve. Uh, first, acknowledge that he exists. If you don't know that he's there, he's going to trap you. So I think we need to know that. But then you go on to have faith in Jesus, have trust in Jesus, and know that he loves you. And pray, pray, pray. Ask God for help, and he will help. He might not help in the way that you anticipated, but he will help. Uh, put on God's armour, dare I say, which in my view is the Holy Spirit. Now remember we talked about... Um, God's armour, didn't we, a little while ago from Ephesians? I remember poor old Midge putting it on for me, in fact, and much to the mirth of the kids. Uh, but they are, just to remind the armour of God, finally then, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armour of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you will be able to make your, or stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth, buckled around your waist with a breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up your shield of faith which you can extinguish with all flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit. 
which is the word of God. And pray. Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep praying for all Lord's people. So there you are. How much power do you think the devil has? We talk a lot about him. And if we think about the story of Job, and you might recall that God made a deal with the devil. He allowed Satan free hand to interfere in Job's life, provided that he didn't harm Job. I'll just remind you that first beginning there. God and the devil met. Uh, Did you notice my servant Job? The Lord asks. There is no one on earth as faithful and as good as he is. He worships me and is careful not to do any evil thing. Satan replied, Would Job worship me if if he got nothing out of it? You've always protected him and his family and everything he owns. You bless everything he does. You have given him cattle to fill the whole country. But now suppose you take away everything he has. He will curse you to your face. Hmm. All right, the Lord said to Satan. Everything he has is in your power, but you must not hurt Job himself. And so Satan left. And Satan did his utmost to torment Job. But was he successful in his mission? No. And you can argue a lot about the story of Job, but the thing I get from this little bit is, Job was a man. The devil could do nothing to him. We are all people here, and we actually have more power than the devil. He has only one power, and that is the power to deceive. But other than that, he is nothing. So, what happened to the devil in the... Or, what? sorry, what's going to happen to the devil in the end? Uh, he ends up in that fiery... Well done. In that fiery pit. Uh, forever. And, of course, I think when that's gone, then there will be no temptation... And that then takes us to the very end. And I I think it's fascinating that um, we've got Genesis and the devil, if you like, right at the beginning. And if we go all the way to the end of the Bible, the very last couple of pages in the Bible, then we end up with the devil being cast into that fiery pit and then the Garden of Eden being restored. Chapter 22, if you wanted to follow it. So... I'll just read that bit now, chapter 22. The angel also showed me the river of the water of life, sparkling like crystal and coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb and flowing down the middle of the city street. So the Garden of Eden has turned into a city. On each side of the river was the tree of life, which bears fruit 12 times a year, once each month, and its leaves are for the healing of nations. 
Nothing that is under God's curse will be found in the city. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, his name will be written on their foreheads, there shall be no more night. They will not need lamps or sunlight, because the Lord God will be their light, and they will rule as kings forever. So we have that river and that sense of holiness, if you like, and energy and life source coming from that river and the tree of life on the side. Notice the tree of life. It doesn't make an ad- uh, mention of the tree of knowledge and good and evil. And I kind of imagine maybe we've already eaten from that. Uh, so that doesn't need to be kept away from us. But we, in our faith in Jesus, of course, we have also got eternal life. So that is there.